I'm Maya Contreras, your host, and this is Obscene, episode 11. It would be simplistic merely to state that our country has a deeply complex relationship with abortion. Because, as discussed in the last episode, when I read Kate of the Elder's venomous speech, it is not abortion alone that many take issue with. The matter of contention seems to be disproportionately placed on the person who carries the fetus. On the first episode of Obscene, I briefly spoke about the Greek philosopher Aristotle, who thought of women as mutilated males. He felt that in the womb, a fetus only reached its full potential if it were born a male. If not born male, the fault was with the woman and her cold menses. Yes, that's right. Aristotle believed women's reproductive material was cold. And if the warmth of the male sperm could not overcome the woman's frigid reproductive system, then a female would be produced. So, if you're wondering why misogynistic men call women that don't please them frigid, thank Aristotle for that one. And let's not forget his racism. Aristotle felt only white women were capable of orgasms, not dark-skinned women. He also believed that the way for women to reach her full potential, which would always fall short of males, was to be obedient. For that was her only purpose. Aristotle's ideas on women would be preserved, read, and repeated for many millennia, stored in the libraries he invented. As scientist Dr. Hazel Levy said on an earlier episode, Aristotle's ideas are in the concrete. They're in the bones of our society. Aristotle, however, was a proponent of abortion and recommended it as a type of birth control. While that might sound like Aristotle had his progressive moments, let's not forget it was still men during the Greek and Roman era who determined who could get an abortion. As Christianity took over, it picked through the teachings of Greek and Roman philosophy, and they took what they liked and discarded the rest. They banned abortion and all birth control methods, sanctioning both as sin. No abortions quite literally meant growing their parishioners. Those that ran the church liked Aristotle's idea that women were to be obedient, so they kept that. Instilling fear by threatening eternal sin or physical and emotional abuse, a married woman was to be obedient to both God and her husband. Women who were not yet married were to remain virgins. Fear and consequence has always been used to try and control the bodies of others. What instills more fear than organized religion or the threat of prison? What has more dire consequences than our systematic misogyny and racism that continues to construct laws meant to suppress the human rights of women and those most marginalized? What has shaped our thinking around fear and consequence more than the thousands of years of white male philosophers, colonizers, and elected officials, always with an agenda? Conquer, divide, control, oppress, profit. Choosing who can get an abortion, obedience to God and husband, constructing restrictive laws to hurt women in marginalized groups, tends to permeate conservative philosophy, though we have seen it reverberate in far left circles as well. It is in the concrete. It is in our bones. Luckily, we have reproductive justice advocates like Renee Bracey Sherman, who have the tools to break up the concrete, to remove the poison marrow from society's bones. She just needs you to listen and to understand what is needed. She wants to give you the toolbox to help her reconstruct our society. Uh, my name is Renee Bracey Sherman, and I'm the Senior Public Affairs Manager at the National Network of Abortion Funds, and I'm also a freelance writer and a reproductive justice activist. And what drew you to your occupation? Ooh, that's such a good question. Um, I think the short answer is I had an abortion, um, but the longer answer, uh, it's just the way that I was raised. My parents are both nurses. And they always instilled in me and my brothers this sense of trying to 
do good in the world and wanting to change and care for people, caring about people's health care, that health care was a human right. They may not have always put it in those exact terms, but making sure that people have what they need is always really important to them. So that kind of became something that I really, really cared about. Um, but shortly after college, um, I should say during college, I learned about how the intersections of race, class, gender identity, sexual orientation, geography, income, all of these things impact people's uh, ability to live and to thrive, particularly when it comes to being treated uh, for HIV. And so shortly after I graduated from college, I worked at an LGBT organization. It was called the Gay Straight Alliance Network. We wanted to share their stories and make their voices heard to legislators. And in working with them, um, I've always felt that you shouldn't ask someone to do something that you're not willing to do yourself. And I felt like it wasn't right to be asking them to, you know, bear their souls and talk to legislators about their experiences and their identity and who they are if I wasn't really willing to do that myself. Um, from then on, I started writing about Black women's experiences with abortion because I felt like there wasn't a lot of conversation around people of color who have abortions, particularly Black women, um, outside of like antis talking about, you know, Black people having abortions being genocide or Black babies needing to be saved from Black you know, black women who are having abortions as if we are just this dangerous monster. And, and so then a lot of consulting and writing and um, worked in a number of different places uh, while I was in graduate school. And then uh, it'll be four years this summer that I started working at the National Network of Abortion Funds, where um, it really felt like I came full circle because what I was learning about reproductive justice, I was volunteering with an abortion fund in California called Access and through that work, I was housing people who were traveling four and five hours for their abortions. I was driving them to their appointments. Um, and so when you spend 24, 48, 72 hours with someone who's having an abortion between 20 and 24 weeks, you get to really know them quite intimately. And, you know, they were staying in my home. And it was really important for me to do this work because when I had my abortion, I wanted to make sure no one felt that loneliness ever again. And so though what my calling to this work had just really grown exponentially. Um, and so now I work on abortion story sharing um, and support abortion funds, uh, the 71 um, that are in across the country who raise money to help people pay for their abortions and um, give people rides and house them and all of those things and build the platform of advocacy um, to really ensure that abortion is not only accessible, but it is funded and that people who are accessing abortions are treated with respect. What were some of the early obstacles you had with your career? Ooh, that's a really good question. Um, and if I put it really bluntly, um, racism Racism exists in feminist spaces mm. and within the reproductive health rights and health rights movements, uh, justice movements. No, because it's that centers people. Of color. But, um, but within feminism as well, I think that obviously it's um, not as extreme as uh, racism in, um, you know, when it comes to like white supremacy, other spaces, but. Um, I think that what feels frustrating is that people don't recognize that might be um, perpetrating, you know, microaggressions against you, or they might not realize that they are being racist in their actions. And that racism can show up with who they let in the room for a meeting mm. um, or the fact that they only let one of us into a meeting um, or just that like, talking about race issues is considered deviation from the feminist issue at the table or talking about abortion. Right. And it's so frustrating to me because ha like the majority of people who have abortions are people of color. So you cannot do abortion rights work without talking about race. 
you cannot talk about elite autonomy without talking about the history of how black and brown bodies have been treated in this country and are currently treated and who is able to actually make a decision to become a parent. And then once they decide Mm -hmm. to become a parent, who is able to parent without, you know, being um, pressured by the state or coerced uh, and whatnot. And I think um, it's definitely hit me in a lot of different spaces Um, But one of the ones that really sticks with me a lot, I was serving on a board of directors for a large uh, reproductive rights organization. And I remember trying to diversify the board because we, the entire three years that I was on the board, there were no not the color on the board. And that just felt really frustrating to me. And when I said that, I remember a board member kind of looking at me very confused and not knowing what I meant. And then like five minutes later, it was like, do you mean like Latinos? And I was like, yeah, Um, I will say she didn't actually use that term, but uh, I was like, (laughs) yes, but I was like Latinas. Yes. Also South Asian women, like East Asian women, indigenous folks. Like, yeah, there's like a whole lot of folks. Um, And just the confusion was just so frustrating to me because I think these are people who are like well-meaning, consider themselves progressive and don't think about this. And I'll also say that when I tried to bring other young folks of color onto the board, at one point, a board member, when I was describing um, another person who was South Asian, you know, was in a completely different, you know, profession of, as me, um, had different experiences and still works in the reproductive fields, like as a lawyer and, uh, you know, do, did all these other things was queer, all this stuff, right. Had the board member turned to me and was like, but how is she different than you? And I was just floored because they've never sat there and said, okay, well, we have seven white women on this board, yeah. <laughs> seven white women who are all yeah. over the age of 45 Yet I am trying to get another young woman of color on the board. Right. right. And they want to know how I am different than someone who is a, a completely different person than me. Um, but like I'm black salvation, like people of color are not the same. So that level of racism has um, been an obstacle in that I haven't, there are spaces that um, I can be in and it's exhausting because I'm the only one and there's this pressure. Um, but also, um, that people are forgotten and they're not in the decision-making rooms and it frustrates me to no end. And, um, I will say that it adds a level of stress, uh, to doing this work that I, I didn't anticipate to be Mm. really honest. And that I'm constantly disappointed by well, I've seen lots of microaggressions playing out um, in real time on Twitter, even some today that I've seen. So, yeah, it's um, it's something that is unnecessary and, and distracts from trying to get the work done. Um, and when you said, too, that, you know, like, well, there's one of you to be the representative of every person of color. It reminds me of when there was um, um, someone wanted to have a black owned network. And someone said, there's already BET. Mm-hmm. Why do you need to have another one? It's like, there's 45 sports centers, right. but you are worried about having two stations that would be predominantly um, black owned and run. So yeah, I get that. Right. I will just say like, to me, the question is, what are you so worried about? What do you say? That is the question that I have when I see that. Absolutely. What's the number one misunderstanding people have about your job? Oh, um, for this, I'll go with the aspect of abortion swearing. Um, I think that people think that it's easy. Mm. Um, I think they think that it's something that someone can just do and that it, it isn't labor. Right. And a lot of the work that I have done with the leadership program I started at the National Network of Abortion Funds called We Testify. It's a leadership program for people who've had abortions. And 
we not only train people to share their abortion stories publicly, but we actually build their skills to be leaders in this movement. Because I, again, say I'm quite surprised that how many move organizations in the reproductive health rights and justice movements um, don't have people who've had abortions in leadership, um, less so in the reproductive justice field because um, they're just better at everything. But um, there are just so many. And how many organizations like don't have people who've had abortions, the people who, you know, we're claiming to serve on our board of directors, things like that. So that is what's really important to me is being able to grow the leadership, right? Um, mm-hmm. And with that, I think people think that sharing an abortion story is just something that you can just quickly and easily do. You just say, I had an abortion, here's the situation, and I'm done. And they don't really think about the preparation time that goes into thinking about, okay, well, what parts of my abortion story do I want to share? What don't I want to share? What are the right. implications of me sharing? Um, we've had storytellers like lose their jobs for being public about their mm. abortions. Um, there are familial consequences. Like I have a family member who does not speak to me anymore. Um, it's not just the one time thing. And then there's also the impact afterwards publicly or even privately can bring up a lot of complicated emotions because often abortions happen during complicated times in our lives. Maybe it was an awful relationship. Maybe it was a time that we were extremely poor or homeless or, you know, we just had a kid and (laughs) trying to figure out how to make ends meet all of these things and community care work that needs to go into supporting that storyteller afterwards. And I think people who have not had abortions do not think about that at all. And so it's very important for me to explain to them what that's about, right. what that looks like. And that um, it's, like I said, it's not just an easy one-off thing. It is, it is actual labor and it is labor that deserves to be compensated. So, you know, people deserve to be paid when they come speak mm. at rallies or at you know, your fundraisers where you want them to share their abortion stories. They deserve to be pampered and treated with respect. They deserve to be elevated and lifted up. Um, And I think that people don't realize uh, what goes into all of it. Um, I'm glad you talked about the compensation aspect because I, I firmly believe um, so many in this country don't value creativity. They don't value creative labor. They don't value the research people do. They don't value the emotional labor somebody puts into something and they don't think it um, deserves to be monetized or compensated. So, um, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, um, you, how do you define reproductive justice? Good question. Um, I define reproductive justice um, the way that uh, our foremothers uh, designed it and created it, and that it is, you know, working to ensure that everyone is able to decide if, when, and how to become a parent, and to be able to have all the rights and resources to, to parent their children um, free from violence, coercion. Um, and just in safe and healthy communities. Choice as a framework, the right to choose wasn't realistic for people of color because the reality is that if you are living in poverty, if there is um, no clinic in your community, um, if you are poor, you actually don't have a choice. There are folks who are having abortions because they simply can't afford a child. They would love to continue that pregnancy, but they simply cannot afford it. So that choice is not a real choice. And on the flip side is that there are people who have, you know, wanted to have an abortion, but weren't able to get one simply because they could not afford the abortion Um, or were forced into adoption when that wasn't actually the decision they wanted. They, may have wanted an abortion, but they couldn't get to um, a clinic early enough or to parent, but adoption ended up being the only option for them. And, and I think what's important with reproductive justice is making sure that people are able to make all of those decisions of free will so that if you are placing a child for adoption, 
that it is something that um, you truly want and not simply because the other options uh, weren't accessible for you. With abortion or parenting, it's that you are freely making that decision, not just because you simply couldn't afford a different option. And so you really need to look at what are the systemic inequalities that are making those choices for someone. And if you do not look at the, the systemic and structural inequalities, then you're actually not looking at the full picture. Um, therefore, that's not reproductive justice. And so reproductive justice really looks at the systems and then centers the most marginalized people, particularly folks of color, because we know that race is one of the, out, the determinants of um, various outcomes um, in our country because of racism. If you're not going to have a bad health outcome because you're Black, it's because of the way that society treats you because you're Black or the way that a doctor treats you because you're Black. Um, so really making sure that uh, yeah, folks have what they need to be able to make the best decisions for themselves. And it's clear that you um, value creativity and inclusivity and representation are essential aspects to your reproductive justice work. And I read an article that you wrote for Al Jazeera America where you discuss the importance of including um, abortion storylines in film and television, but more importantly, that they are portrayed in an accurate way. Um, I just saw an abortion included on Shrill on Hulu and on HBO's Veep. Um, they managed to put some humor into that mm-hmm. one, you know, and, yeah. um, I, I saw that you mentioned a few other examples like scandal and house of cards, but in my recollection, um, abortion in film and television seems relatively rare. What does it mean to you to see abortion accurately portrayed in a storyline? Yeah, this is actually one of my favorite things to be asked about, and I don't get asked about it a lot. So I'm really glad you asked this question. Um, So my BFFs, uh, Dr. Gretchen Sisson and Steph Harold, who are at the University of California, San Francisco, um, and I do a lot of the research um, with the abortion on screen um, program that where they're actually doing the research on abortion in American film and television. And it's really funny because abortion has been on television for over a hundred years, but most people don't realize that. Um, I always find people are really surprised when they don't realize that dirty dancing had an abortion on it. Like the reason that baby needed to step in was because, um, they were, there was an abortion. Um, so I think it's really it's really fascinating that it's actually constantly in shows. The problem is that, um, and what we're seeing that's different now is that it hasn't always been accurately represented, or right. it's been it's been stigmatized, or it's been shown as oh, okay, you know, this person the character is considering an abortion, but then ends up. having a miscarriage or not deciding not to have an abortion. So there are abortion plot lines. It's just that more recently within the past, you know, five, six years that we're actually seeing it represented where people are, the characters are going through with the abortion and that their experiences are being represented accurately, medically accurately. They are showing real emotions and that um, they are being done with humor. So like you mentioned, v, um, for a long time, people didn't think that you could kind of do abortion humor, but, you know, Insecure, uh, Dear White People, has, right. all of those shows have shown us that you can. Um, it's, it can be quite funny. And I think that it's really shifting the conversation because, the characters are demystifying what does it take to get an abortion? Why does someone right. need an abortion? And that it doesn't have to be this like really sad, depressing experience that it can be um, something that's, you know, that can be kind of funny. Um, I think about. And a relief. Yeah. You know? And a relief. And I think, so like one of uh, my kind of favorite episodes, well, 
there's uh, several of my favorite episodes, but like Shonda Rhimes has consistently just like shifted the game when it comes to abortion representation right. on television, but also particularly for people of color. And I think with, you know, character Christina Yang on Grey's Anatomy and with Olivia Pope mm. on Scandal, it can, you know, you can see that it's their characters particularly of color, like, yeah, I would like an abortion and it doesn't have to be a big deal about it. Um, that's just what I want. I also really loved, um, dear white people's, uh, with where Coco had an abortion. Mm-hmm. That one I think was really fascinating to me because I think a lot of people think that people having an abortion just make this decision really flippantly. Um, and honestly, it's, it's okay if you do, if you've always known that you would want an abortion. I know I did. I knew that as soon as I started having sex as a teenager, I was like, oh, if I ever get pregnant, I'm totally having an abortion. So I always knew that it wasn't, it was like a no brainer for me, but I really loved the way that Coco, they did kind of like a sliding doors where she thought about what her future would be like. She thought about what this could be and decided that is not what she wanted. And that is okay. I think that it's really, really fascinating to like, to see that um, represented on film. In addition, like with her roommate, Kelsey, that Coco and Kelsey were just like sitting there cracking jokes. She was, Coco was talking about how she had great sex and that was what resulted of the abortion, that it didn't have to be this like regrettable sex, that it could be something that was fun. Um, I also think that Bojack Horseman was hilarious. It's a Netflix show (laughs) as well. Yeah. And um, Diane accidentally tweets out on uh, 16 Aquafina's Twitter account that she's having an abortion. Um, And then they do this like absurd over the top song. um, It's like, get that fetus, kill that fetus. It's like so absurd, right? But the point is that um, later when Diane is in the, um, in the abortion clinic with another woman who's getting an abortion, it's like, yeah. Obviously that song was like hyperbolic and ridiculous, but like, it made me feel better. It like, you know, gets rid of the stigma. And I think that that was just such a meta way of the, how important it is that we share our stories and that we share different kinds of stories and that it's okay to talk about the funny parts of our abortion. Also the sad parts, also the challenging parts, also the like real parts, like it is a multitude of things. And to be able to see that, yeah. And to be able to see that and to watch a character that you love go through that, I think is really, really powerful. And like, oh, the last one I'll say is um, when Hiamara got an abortion on Jane the Virgin, the, they just quickly, you know, it's like she got a medication abortion and that was it, right? But I loved that they didn't focus the abortion on, or focus the drama on her abortion and her decision. She was already a parent. In fact, she's a grandmother, right? Where the focus was, was the tension between her and her mother and her mother, you know, being uncomfortable with the abortion, but eventually coming around. Actually, I lied. I'm going to bring up one more that I loved that was recent. Um, so you recently wrote a piece in the Washington Post about uh, this film called Little Woods. And um, it stars little Lily James and Tessa Thompson. Tessa Thompson has been in two movies who've had abortions because she um, played a character who had an abortion in For Colored Girls. Um, but Tessa Thompson plays an older sister, um, an adopted older sister um, of Lily James's character. And Lily James' character needs the abortion. And she doesn't have health insurance. She already has a kid. And they're trying to, like, keep their house from going in foreclosure. And so they end up having to, like, travel into Canada to be able to get uh, an abortion that's covered by the national health system. And they run into a lot of um, issues along the way. But what I really loved about that depiction was that, one, you saw a character who was adopted. And it did not stand in the way of supporting her sister's decision. You see a parent who's having an abortion and you see the financial and logistical challenges that she was experiencing in North Dakota, that it was actually easier relatively 
to go to another country to cross the border into Canada to get the abortion and try and, and do it that way rather than try to get to a clinic, the only clinic in Fargo. And so I really, really love that depiction. It's a phenomenal movie. So people should just watch it in general. But um, it was just the storytelling there, the abortion storytelling was just fantastic. Something too, um, all the shows you brought up um, either have a black showrunner, female showrunner, or lots of women of color that are on the writing staff. And so I think that makes a massive difference in an industry that is predominantly white, male, cis. Um, So I I think as this industry slowly, it's too slow for me, but as this industry slowly changes, I, I hope to see more of these stories included. Um, so I'm, I'm glad you, you brought all those ones up. Um, one of the reasons I wanted to do this series was because um, all of the restrictive abortion bills that are flooding up this year, right? It's not just this year. They've been flooding out, you know, for a very long time. But, um, but this mm-hmm. year has been uh, especially egregious. Um, and what I think a lot of people don't know is how difficult it was already to access abortion. You want to let us know a little bit about what some of the challenges were already before these bills came out? Yeah. Challenges to abortion access. Been doing it since 1976. Um, I say 1976 because that's when the Hyde Amendment passed, um, from between 1973 when abortion was legalized and 1976. Uh, Medicaid um, and really any federal uh, health insurance program covered abortions. But uh, Henry Hyde, uh, who was a representative from Illinois, and I apologize, from Illinois, so I'm sorry, everyone. Um, He created the Hyde Amendment and got it passed. And so it is a budgetary amendment that is added to the budget every single year. And it bars anyone who is enrolled in Medicaid, anyone who's on the military TRICARE, um, Indian Health Services, um, state, state and federal employees from being able to use their health insurance to pay for abortions. And there's a handful of states that allow right. it. But when he, when he pushed this amendment, he openly said that he would love to stop anyone from getting an abortion, but... The only people he can control are poor folks because they're they're the ones who are on Medicaid, and so he used his power to to dis, um, to disproportionately impact people of color, poor folks, um, and it's really really telling because that is actually how the abortion restrictions have gone ever since, right? They are restrictions that make it right. that people who have less access to transportation people who are already parenting, people who already don't have enough money, they have to jump through all of these hoops. And the anti-abortion movement is counting on the fact that they won't be able to jump through their hoops. They won't be able to make it. And so, yes, there are these bans that are stopping abortion at, I don't know, 6, 8, 12, 15. They're just making them up. None of these weeks have any sort of basis in medical science. There's no evidence for them. There's actually no evidence-based research for any restrictions on abortion. It is incredibly safe, yet they are just kind of inching it back and inching it back and inching it back in hopes of overturning it. But honestly, before we got to this point, it was already extremely difficult for people to get an abortion. And that's what we were seeing at the National Network of Abortion Funds and abortion funds across the country. That's why they were created, because people could not use their health insurance, particularly Medicaid, to cover their abortions. So they need to come up with, you know, $450, $500 or so or more very, very quickly. And most people just can't do it. I think there was an article in The Atlantic that had shown that more than half of Americans don't have $400 for an emergency. I'm not shocked well, by that at all. Actually, right. But that's exactly how much an abortion, a first trimester abortion costs. So most people can't afford it. And so then they spend weeks and weeks trying to save up money to pay for it, figure out where their nearest clinic is, figure out time off. Oh, right. also like figure out childcare and feed the children that they already have. 
And so time passes and passes. And as they get later in the pregnancy, the number of clinics you can go to drops. It costs more money, all of these things. And it, it simply puts it out of reach. And so now they're, they've kind of pushed it off where you get later and later in pregnancy because you're kind of chasing the money. And then they scold people for having a later abortion. So then they're moving the goalpost, right. you know, further and further away. Well, I guess tighter in when it comes to gestations, because they, at one point it was at 24 weeks, around 24 weeks for viability for Roe. And then they're like 20 weeks. And then they're like, okay, right. well, actually 18, 15, 8, 6, a total ban um, in Alabama. Again, all of these gestation limits, they're not based on anything. They're just made up. Um, so I fundamentally believe that an abortion ban is an abortion right. ban. It does not matter what it is. Um, it is designed to keep people from being able to access care. And then the last thing I'll say is that they specifically make it really difficult for young people. Um, they have judicial bypass. They require judicial bypasses, which means that young people mm. have to get either a parent or sometimes both parents our guardian to consent um, or to at least be notified of the abortion. And if they can't, then they have to go to a judge, which is a complete stranger and right. use judges hands to be able to get an abortion. And then they have to like, you know, they have to miss school to be able to do that. It's completely ridiculous. And it's so ridiculous. There's a young person I work with. Um, her name is HK Gray. And she wrote a fabulous piece in Teen Vogue about she had her daughter um, at 15 and then when mm. she got pregnant at 17 and wanted an abortion she had to go get a judicial bypass and she was just like the irony of that I can make medical decisions for my daughter wow. but not for myself it's ridiculous so again it's just like you know infantilizing and patronizing right. of people who need abortion right. as if we haven't thought this decision through as if we don't know what we need as if we haven't you know we haven't recognized okay, this is what we want. Um, and then forcing us to go through ridiculous hoops for literally nothing. Well, and some of the, the issue going on with the, with the abortion bans is there's a lot of confusion and misinformation about what these bills actually are. Like I, speaking of the Hyde Amendment, you know, I remember Paul Ryan, so glad he's not there oh, anymore. Yeah. It's okay. He just got replaced by another terrible person. I but, know. <laughs> but, but, you know, but Paul Ryan said, you know, Hyde Amendment was permanent. Of course, it's not. It gets reauthorized every year. And it could not be reauthorized. It would be, would be nice if um, we take the White House back. But I think part of the Republican strategy here is confusion and misinformation. Absolutely. So a lot of people don't understand what when do these bans go in effect? You know, what is actually the legal status of abortion? What, what would you tell someone who's confused about the state of these bills right now? Absolutely. Plain and simple, abortion is legal in the United States. In all 50 states, Washington, D.C., you know, Puerto Rico, like it is legal. Um, one of the challenges is that um, a lot of the headlines have been really like misleading. And we definitely hear from abortion funds across the country that People think that abortion is illegal because, you know, the, like Alabama banned, signed. Yeah, it's signed, but it wasn't a lot of these these bills, um, even if they're signed, they weren't supposed to go into effect until 2020 or, you know, they bills don't usually take some time to go into effect. But also the ACLU right. has been suing the hell out of these states. And so it's put all of these right. bans on hold. So like, I think a lot of people are focused on, you know, Georgia and Alabama, and they're like to six-week ban, totally ban. Thing is, is that they've actually been trying six-week bans in a number of different states, um, but none of them have gone into effect. They've been doing this since like, you know, last year, year before. And so like none of them have gone into effect simply because um, the various, like the Center for Reproductive Rights, um, the ACLU, they've all sued to put these um, bans on hold. And so none of them have actually gone into effect. And honestly, just like if you are thinking about getting an abortion and you're not sure, or if you're listening and you have a friend who wants an abortion, the one thing you should just do, call your local abortion clinic or call your local abortion fund and they walk through what are the things that you have to do. So if there is like some sort of 
you know, 24, 48, 72 hour waiting period, something like that. They'll tell you what you need to do. Um, but you will still be able to get an abortion and they will be able to like, you know, point you in the right direction for all the information that you need. Your, um, pin tweet is <laughs> evergreen. I'm glad that you have it up there. It says daily reminder. If you've had an abortion, you don't need forgiveness from anyone unless you want it. You did nothing wrong. You are loved of the one in three women who will have an abortion by age 45, 70% say they're religious of the 28% are Catholic. No matter the circumstances or reasons for you wanting an abortion, you don't deserve shame and stigma. You are strong and deserve love. So I know there are many people that need to hear that right now. And there are a lot of, I hate saying well-meaning because it's like <laughs> their, their words are not, <laughs> are, are they're damaging, right? So I'm going to say well-meaning anyways. There are a lot of well-meaning in quotes, activists and presidential candidates that have falsely said, no one wants an abortion. And um, we know that's demonstrably untrue, you know. Um, it also makes it seem like, uh, I mean, there are women that um, struggle with that decision, but there are some that do not. What would you say to leaders outside of the reproductive justice field that want to properly language abortion issues, especially when they have really big platforms that could actually help destigmatize it? How would you have them discuss um, women's issues, or should they just stand down and give a platform to those who can talk about it properly? Yeah. Um, I think language matters so much. Um, and not just because I'm a writer and just because I do communications work. Um, but simply it signals to people that our values are and, um, who we listen to. So like one of the things that's really important to me is like using gender inclusive language on abortion. So they work with a number of trans right. and non-binary folks who have abortions. So I'll use the term people who have abortions, um, those who need abortions, et cetera, et cetera. It's really not that hard. And to be honest, for me as a cisgender straight woman, it does not take anything away from me mm -hmm. to like include those folks. And I know that that can be a point of contention for some people, but again, I just ask, what are you afraid of? I think it's important that we actually make the pie bigger um, and make space for the most marginalized among us. And when it comes to this language, you know, I tweeted about this, um, correcting someone who said no one wants an abortion. And there are a lot of people who were like, what's the difference between, there's a difference between want and need. Why are you saying this? The thing is, is that like, look, I did want an abortion and there are a lot of people who do. Mm -hmm. um, and yes, maybe to some people it's semantics, but to a lot of us, it's actually an empower, a way to take the power back for you to say like, Oh, well, no one really wants an abortion. That actually is really disempowering and making it seem like right. I, like I did what I had to do. And because I had no other choice, not because I made a decision and that is exactly what I wanted. Like I said, I mean, I'm probably the rarest of the rare, but when I started having sex at 16, uh, I, you know, remember sitting, going through class, like a sex ed class and, and thinking like, okay, I'm going to get on birth control. I'm going to like, you know, use condoms. I'm going to do all of these things, but also condoms break, birth control fails. And so if, that if those things right. fail, I will want an abortion. So for people to say, well, nobody wants an abortion, nobody plans to have an abortion. It's actually not true. And my question to them is, so what if we did? Like why almost like justify right. or be in this defensive stance of that this is something, that abortion is something that people don't really want. It stigmatizes it. It's okay for us to want it. It's okay for us to need it. Um, and I, I, I get that people think that this is just like this little semantics debate, but it really, really matters. There is so much stigma out there when talking about abortion that I think that it is really important that we interrogate the words that we use. One of, um, you know, the phrase that I coined and that we use as our mantra at National Network of Abortion Funds is everyone loves someone who's had an abortion. And I think that that's really important for us to say because there's so much vitriol right. about people who have abortions, because 
those of us um, who are speaking out are often like we're vilified by we're being vilified by the president. We're being vilified by an entire political party. We're being vilified by people um, within the so-called political party. Um, it's really exhausting out there. And I, I wish that, you know, as you're saying, these well-meaning folks would actually take a step back and let those of us who've had abortions leave. We can tell you how we would like to be talked about. We are right here. Please right. stop silencing us. And I think it's really, really exhausting to see um, when we want to, you know, we're telling you how we want to be addressed. We're telling you how we want to be talked about and people ignore us. Um, there's this idea that people who have abortions, oh, they're not really sharing their stories. It's something to be silenced about. Actually, there's a lot of us who've been sharing our stories for a long time, particularly folks at the mm-hmm. And I think that people are, are leaving us out. Yes, there is the stigma and people do decide not to share their stories or hesitant about it. But there are some of us who are doing it. I think by continuing, continuing to push this myth um, it furthers the stigma and it tells people, it signals to people that it's something that you should be silent about. So, yeah, I don't know. I just, I really think that messaging really matters. Um, the last thing I'll say is that we at the national network of abortion funds really, really care about our language, whether it's gender inclusive or actually how we talk about abortion funding. Um, as you know, my executive director, Yamani Hernandez says that, abortion funding is a truly radical act and that it is a redistribution of wealth. A lot of times people think of redistribution of wealth as this like really terrible thing. And that's because Republicans have branded it that way, but it's actually a way of collective care. How do we take care of one another? How do we support one another and redistributing distribution of wealth is a piece of that, making sure that those who cannot afford something have it and that those of us who have additional money can make that happen. So we really think of abortion funding as just this radical act that anyone can participate in. Well, also Republicans do believe in redistribution of wealth just among themselves. So, you know, they're very hypocritical (laughs) about that. So speaking, speaking of politicians, you know, we're, we're in an election year, I feel like always, but you know, (laughs) we have a lot of presidential candidates out there. It just never stops. And, um, you you know, I know that it's important not just to focus on, on presidential candidates. We, we have to care about who's getting elected to state houses, the governors that are signing these bills into law, you know, local offices. But right now, um, these presidential candidates could do some good in messaging. And um, a few of them have talked about um, black maternal health. Um, And of course, if they're not addressing systemic racism and sexism, you know, kind of their plan would be moot to me. But um, have you seen... um, have you seen any presidential candidates start getting it right so far? Um, and are they understanding that, or any of them, have you seen them really understand that black women lead reproductive justice, that we overwhelmingly support bodily autonomy and access to abortion, that we're the ones that get denied most the proper health care? Do you see any politicians kind of addressing some of these issues? Absolutely. Well, first and foremost, I want to shout out the folks at Black Mamas Matter. Um, a dear friend of mine, Elizabeth Dazke, runs it, she's the co-director there, and they have been doing phenomenal work. And the fact that you even see politicians at any level talking about this is because of the tireless work that Black Mamas Matter has been doing. So, you know, check them out, follow them, get involved. Um, but yeah, I think the fact that politicians have been talking about this is huge. It's, you know, very obvious that, uh, certain candidates are talking about it, whereas, uh, the white men ones are not. And I think that that's really frustrating, but it also, I think goes to lived experiences and who these politicians actually see as the base of the democratic party. Um, or even the Republican Party, because Republicans could be talking about it. They care about life so much. Um, it would be really right. cool if they'd address it. 
but um, they don't. This should be a bipartisan thing, and yet it's not. And I think that it's simply because, again, at the core of this is racism. Do you value Black bodies? Do you value Black women at all? Do you value Black trans people? Um, And you can tell which politicians do and which do not. Um, I know that uh, Senators uh, Warren and Harris have released, um, well, Senator Warren released a plan to address maternal mortality and maternal health. And then um, Senator Kamala Harris has, uh, she released, she was um, sponsored a bill in the Senate to address it. So that's like right. really, really huge. Um, I know that Kirsten Gillibrand, um, is also Senator, has uh, addressed this and has released, um, she released a plan around abortion and, and has been talking quite a bit about this. And so I think that that's right. really phenomenal. Um, before like praising anyone too much, I just, I want to see more. Um, right. I am like, I am of the, yeah, that's cool. What else you got? What else you got? What else you got? Um, <laughs> you know, I don't know. I just, I'm like, what else is in the bag? Um, so I think it's really important, but I, I do think that this is a signal to who is running their campaigns um, and that a lot of them have uh, more folks of color on their campaigns or women on their campaigns. Oh, and I cannot leave out Julian Castro, the dude, man. Oh, yes. He's done some, yeah. some stuff. Um, and I, I want to shout him out in particular because uh, Maya Rupert is a black woman running his campaign, and she the, the only, only black, black woman, right? Uh, campaign woman, yeah, <laughs> campaign right. manager, fabulous. And she yeah. comes from the reproductive health rights and justice field. So I think that, like you know, she is phenomenal, and so he's been talking about this, but also like with abortion, he's not only been saying like you know what he plans to do, but also um, he has been talking about abortion in the terms of criminalization. Um, and so, and the fact that like, right. let's talk about who actually, when, if, and when abortion becomes illegal or extremely inaccessible, who is already being criminalized and who will continue to be criminalized as, um, black and brown folks. So, you know, I think the four of them have just really, um, man, they stop their feet. It's not happen overnight. Right. These, all of these politicians, whether it's on their, um, black maternal health plans or their abortion plans. They did not come up with that on their own. It is because advocates have been screaming and yelling and in their face about it, asking about it all the time. And so they finally are responding. And I'm really excited about that. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy about it, too. Um, it, it shows you, um, I think part of it is the dam broke a little bit um, mm-hmm. after Clinton lost, because I think for a long time, people were telling us, that we needed to be patient um, about progress. We needed to be patient. Our time will come. And then it was clear when they elected the most unqualified human being right. to take um, the oath of office that it was like, you know what? That is showing us that our time won't come, right? right. Like that we're going to have to take power. We're going to have to assert what we want now. That that you being you know, offended by the words abortion, by you being offended by the phrase black lives matter, you're going to have to just get over it because we're going to keep saying it. So that's to me, that that change too, you know, also nobody walks into an abortion clinic and it's like, hi, I'd like my right to choose, please. Like exactly, (laughs) Exactly. anti-abortion folks are saying abortion. Those of us who have abortions, we're saying abortion. We're asking for abortion. It's okay for you to say abortion too. It's not a scary word. Just embrace it. Exactly. We know we've seen the statistics. We know that abortion bans don't stop all abortions. Um, it does, um, it does stop access. And we know that we're living in a country where wealthy white women have always pretty much had access to abortion. Like here in New York, Adam Restall is known. And she talks about um, her having wealthier and wealthier, you know, white clients Mm -hmm. decades before Roe versus Wade became the law of the land. And of course we've seen um, Republicans um, push their, their wives or their mistresses to get an abortion when it was inconvenient for them. Um, so there's obviously tons of hypocrisy when it comes to the uh, abortion discussion. 
Um, and also the language of pro-choice, you know, is slightly limited because we know that the most marginalized um, can't afford access. So how do we, you've touched on a little bit, but how do we open it up more to include all um, folks that are the most marginalized? And, and, I'll, and I'll say this, um, a lot of people, I think, are confused at like, why do black people get so many abortions? <laughs> and I'm like, well, this is a bigger encompassing issue, right? So how do we put this language together so people are really understanding why this is happening and why we need to include everybody? Yeah. Um, I'll just say a quick shout out to the folks over at Repro Action who had a campaign uh, to target conservatives and it's abortion, not just for your mistress. Um, <laughs> because I think that's like, one of the hypocrisies out there that, um, you know, they say that there's, there's like a little mantra in our movement is that there's only three cases that are acceptable for an abortion, uh, rape, incest, and mine. It's like, oh, well, yeah, those two, plus whatever my situation is. But your situation is the same as like everyone else's. Right. We all need abortions. It's fine. Um, I think, you know, there's a couple things. Um, the language, like when, who needs abortions and why? And like, yes, um, disproportionately black people um, have abortions at higher rates. However, still, um, right. I think white women, it's still the largest number overall, right. but it's just, but black people is disproportionately. And then the majority right. identifies people of color. So, um, in the solidarity, we all band together. Um, I mean, I think it's obvious that, well, I think it's obvious and it might not be to other people, but that if you us a group so much that they don't have access to basic healthcare, make sure that they access, have access to consistent um, wellness checkups, contraception, any of those things that they need to be able to have safer sex, um, they're going to have more unintended pregnancies. Um, and that's not just abortions. That's also like, you know, having children before they might be ready. And I think conservatives really love to scream and scream about the black abortion rate because it allows them to um, advocate for a type of black people, fetuses, who cannot talk back to them and cannot challenge them on their stance on it. Um, again, like they are like, there's a billboard they did that was said the most dangerous place for black child is in the womb. Um, and that is the misogynoir in that oh, sign gosh. was just so apparent and disgusting and it's basically like, who are you saying is dangerous? Oh, the yeah. black parents, um, black moms. You're saying that we harm our own children and that you need white people to come save these black babies from their own parents. Like that builds on so many disgusting racist tropes um, that have been in this country for a long time. And yet they like think they can get away with it for being like, well, we care about black babies. Sure, except until that baby is born, Secretary Ben Carson is getting ready to, like, kick everybody out of housing. Um, they keep cutting, they've been cutting food stamps for several presidential administrations, um, pro-choice and not. Um, right. And so I think it's really, it's really frustrating that it's a nice little bumper sticker line that they can use, claim that they care about Black people without actually having to engage with Black people or address the ways that they are actually making life more difficult for black people. But there are people who are still going to try to get an abortion and whether it's legal or illegal. But one thing I want to stress with the audience is that illegal does not mean unsafe. We, people keep saying that we're going to go back to pre row. That's not quite true. We have the invention of the medication abortion. So yes, that history is real and people died. And yes, there are probably going to be some people who are going to be seriously injured or die as a result of some unsafe methods. But we're going to see a lot more that's going to be different than pre-row. And we're already seeing is that because of these barriers, right. you're going to see people who are going to self-manage their own abortion. And they already are. And then they are being criminalized by the state. So they are being brought up on charges. And there have been a number of women, particularly women of color, who have been sentenced to jail, including um, sentenced to 20 years in jail um, in the case of one woman, Harvey Patel, in Indiana. So I think it's 
Yeah, and and Bebe Shui, like, there's a documentary about her case. She attempted suicide. Um, she ingested rat poison, and so they charged her with the death of her fetus. And I think it's really, really scary. Um, right. And I think that it's not it's not going to quite look like free row. This is why we actually need to really address racism within the criminal injustice system because who is going to be harmed is black and brown bodies taking care of themselves and getting the health care that they need. I speak mostly about voting rights and, you know, women are um, the quickest growing prison population yeah. right now, especially black women. You know, if you're going to criminalize abortion and then take away your right to vote, um, you know, I, I, I see a clear line of oppression in what they're, what they're trying to do here. Right. Um, when I spoke to Jalisa yesterday, uh, with sister song, I asked her if she thought that, um, if voting rights would become part of the reproductive justice framework. And she said, oh, yeah, of course, because, um, <laughs> you know, because, um, this is something that is happening. Because of this time right now, it's only, I don't have the exact number. I think it's 529 days until the next election, but, um, <laughs> not that I have any, but, um, but, um, I think what a lot of people want right now is they want to know where to put their energy. They want to know what reproductive organizations they can support. And I want you to talk a little bit about, more about abortion funds, what it is in its function. How do we support that? And then how do we use this time to counter this Republican narrative about abortion and abortion bans? Yeah, um, I cannot stress enough that get involved with your local abortion fund. If um, that's like the one thing you do, do it. Uh, it honestly changed my life because being there for someone, being on that other end of the intake call or driving someone to their appointment or welcoming them, welcoming them into your home really changes your life and theirs. And it's just such a beautiful experience that I, I think brings back the connectivity, the power, the, you know, the grassroots organizing, just like everything together. And it, it, it's a need that's right now. Um, abortion funds are all so different. There are, like I said, 71 uh, across the country in 46 states. Some are national. Um, some are housed within clinics and some are their own freestanding organizations. Some are all volunteer run. Some have staff, some fund abortions, and then some fund abortions. And then some, they do what we call practical support. So housing people, driving people to their appointments, um, translation services, doula, doula services, uh, childcare, like you name it, they do it. And it's pretty amazing. I really just think that it's a quick, tangible way to support someone. Right. Um, and then of course, abortion funds are starting, are starting to get organized and really fight back, fighting for policies, fighting to um, pass resolutions on the ground to um, stand against the Hyde Amendment. Another organization is called All Above All. They are a coalition um, that is trying to repeal the Hyde Amendment, and they're doing a damn good job at it. They are passing initiatives in right. cities and states across the country, passing proactive legislation to get um, insurance coverage in public and private insurance, but mostly public insurance coverage of abortion. So in my home state of Illinois, um, just a year ago, they passed, um, they repealed their ban. So now Medicaid covers it. They're working on other states like Nevada, which is really amazing. Um, it's it's pretty cool work. Um, uh, the last thing I'd suggest is get involved with your local independent abortion clinic. Uh, in a lot of states, yes, I think a lot of people know about Planned Parenthoods, but I don't think they realize that in states where there's only one or a handful of clinics, there almost always are independent clinics. And so they, um, if you reach out to your independent uh, clinic, they will be able to say, hey, yeah, we could use or we could use your counselor, whatever. Check in with them and see if you can buy them lunch one day, like something right. really simple. Um, in Alabama, the last three clinics, they're all independent abortion providers. And so they are holding it down and they don't have the infrastructure or legal support that um, a Planned Parenthood does. 
So it's really important that they have, you know, what it is that they need. Uh, but always, uh, please, please, please check in with them first. Please, like, you know, see what it is that they need so they don't know that you're some weirdo who's just bringing them donuts. Um, and then right. also I would advise that um, don't counter protest at a right. clinic. Um, if you want to be a clinic escort, um, enroll in the program that they have. It's there for a reason because there's a whole set of things that you need to know. I was a clinic escort for a couple of years, um, and it's really great work, but also, like, it's very strict work in how it's done. Um, so we don't encourage people to counter-protest. Right. Um, so it, clinics are different. Some um, have clinic um, escorts, some do not. But check in with that individual clinic to make sure that it's what they need. I think that's the most optimum sentence or word to say, ask, you know, ask. ask yes. Ask. Consent is real, y'all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Everything. Exactly. Yeah, consent yeah. is important. Until next time, I'm Maya Contreras, and this is Obscene. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.